This is an RNZ podcast. How are you coping? I mean, it's been 10 weeks and counting. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, I don't know how to answer that question now, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it's just, you just get on with it, don't you? And That was Nikki Bazant, the health editor for Woman magazine and a familiar voice in the media on matters of health and nutrition and well-being for many years now. And like many others, having limited and locked down lives under Level 3 in Auckland, well-being for her is a bit suboptimal at the moment, something Christchurch-based ZB host Simon Barnett and James Daniels were acutely aware of chatting to her last Wednesday afternoon. And this week, the government staggering its eagerly awaited announcements of its its plans for the weeks and months to come didn't really help with that. On the morning before the government made what amounted to the staggered announcement announcement last Monday afternoon, there was one deadline on the media's mind when the PM fronted up for her regular interviews. The AM show's Ryan Bridge put it to her at some length like this. You know, we've had a hell of a year and people are thinking about Christmas and are thinking about seeing their families. That border, if we're being completely real Uh, about it, that border around Auckland is is not going to move this side of Christmas, right? So would your advice to people in in Auckland be don't, don't book flights, don't book Airbnbs, don't plan to see the family outside of Auckland this side of Christmas? And the Prime Minister's equally long-winded response was this. No, that wouldn't necessarily be my advice. We are doing work on what can we do. At the moment, of course, we've got some people who are able to move and they're doing that on the basis of uh, having that special accreditation to move because it's for uh, you know, essential goods and services moving um, or because there's a list of uh, reasons uh, within our order, like moving house or having to change jobs. But what we want to recognise is that there's a whole bunch of other reasons that are totally valid, particularly as we come up to Christmas, families wanting to be reunited. And how do we balance that need with also the desire for the rest of the country uh, to be safe from COVID during an outbreak? So we're doing some work on that at the moment. Meanwhile, over on the rival breakfast show the same day on TVNZ1, the Prime Minister and host Matty McLean got to the point a little quicker. Out of this by Christmas? I believe so, yes. Now, those responses were flashed right across the media with headlines like PM says don't cancel Christmas travel plans just yet, running a big risk of getting a lot of people's hopes up. But just the day before, epidemiologist Dr Rod Jackson was clearly not among them on News Talk ZB's weekend collective show. As we're heading towards Christmas, is it conceivable, both is it conceivable and two, would you recommend it, that if you were double jabbed and let's say you'd had a a test and and you don't have COVID and that's within 72 hours, that you could travel anywhere in New Zealand, say in December? (laughs) No, no. Now that show's co-host, Tim Roxburgh, seemed to be on the same page on that issue. I don't want, I've said before, I don't want people to be driven by the emotion of, of doing something by an arbitrary date like Christmas because... Delta may change and then you've given people false hope. But if we keep tracking in a good direction with our vaccination rates, then maybe it is if you are double jabbed, you've got greater freedom of travel. But plenty of his peers in the media have been forcing that issue of Christmas lately. It was firmly in the calendar, for example, for stuff when they sat down with National Party leader Judith Collins earlier this month. And now given that there's a short runway sort of before, till the end of the year, till the Christmas period, when Christmas comes... Do you think the government needs to lift restrictions in Auckland and lift the border? Well, hopefully they will be able to well before that, uh, but they need to get the vaccination rates up.
And the National Party's plan for throwing the borders open by Christmas prompted Stuff's political editor Luke Melpas to ask this earlier this month. Just what sort of a Covid Christmas do Kiwis want? Now his answer was that fickle Kiwis want two different things at once for Christmas. On the one hand, he said, people want all this to be over, to see friends and family and travel and even for tourists to return. But on the other hand, many of those same people, he reckoned, just don't want any more Covid in New Zealand. Last week, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy-Allen reckoned there was only one way to go. This is no longer a debate. We should expect that Kiwis stuck overseas, especially in low-risk COVID countries, can come home for Christmas. This needs to happen. Two days later, she challenged COVID response minister Chris Hipkins to declare whether Auckland would still be in Level 3 at Christmas or not. And this week, Kate Hawkesby on News Talk ZB said a good Kiwi Christmas just depended on the government's balls. Opening the border for Kiwis to come home for Christmas will be a ballsy but welcome move. Opening CBDs and retail, getting people back to the dentist and the hairdresser and the physio, allowing Aucklanders to escape Tamaki COVID. This all needs to start rolling out over the next few weeks, surely. The pace, though, at which they move here is key. Quick enough to get the ball rolling in time for Christmas... Meanwhile, under the headline, Kiwis facing Christmas without family or favourite gifts and a stock photo of a middle-class white Christmas dinner, the Herald reported this last weekend. Not only could Santa find it hard to deliver that special gift in time for December 25th as global supply shortages bite, but petrol prices too have hit record highs. While the same day, RNZ reported that leading epidemiologists were saying everyone in New Zealand should plan to encounter COVID-19 themselves by Christmas and they better be prepared. Now, in that wellness chat on Wednesday this week, when Simon Barnett asked Nikki Bezant about the tension and the bad vibes created by lockdown, her response was interesting. I have to stick away from the news sometimes and just mm. the commentary and stuff, because it's, it's, it, a lot of it is very negative, and I feel like that yeah. doesn't help. When you're, in the, yeah. when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't actually help to hear yeah. someone complaining or talking about how it could be done differently or better or whatever. It actually doesn't. And the mental health impact of living with lockdowns has indeed loomed large in the coverage and the commentary that she was talking about there. Hayden Donnell asked the Mental Health Foundation's chief executive, Sean Robinson, have the media been getting this right or making it worse? Kia ora, Sean. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. Thank you very much. So you went viral on Twitter after you tweeted about a media company that rang you up asking you to denounce lockdowns over their effects on people's mental health. Just first of all, are you going to name the media company that did that? No, 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 we're not into naming and shaming. It was really uh, just, you know, making a point about the occasional tendency of some media to try and dictate a story rather than actually listen and engage. Yeah, so how common has this type of request actually been? Is it an isolated incident or have other media companies actually asked you to kind of speak out? against lockdowns? It's pretty rare, but that one was fairly extreme. I do get that sometimes as a a sort of angle within the questioning, but in this particular case, it was someone who said, would you say, and then presented an entire sort of case. If I'm asked a question like that, you know, I get a one-word answer, no. Um, You know, if people try to put words in my mouth, I don't think that's good journalism. You know, there have been other instances of that, not necessarily around the pandemic, but every now and then, I mean, I have had one journalist actually say, 
why don't you say this? And then tried to sort of give me a, actual words that he wanted me to say. Um, and, you know, I'm never going to do that. And I think, you know, any, any person who's genuinely trying to engage with the public through the media, you know, should resist that sort of thing. And it's just really bad journalism. Now, can we address the substance of what the company was saying or that person was saying? So it's almost taken as a given, and a lot of this commentary that lockdown is really hard on people's mental health, how much data is there, first of all, to just actually support how hard lockdowns are on mental health? Yeah, look, well, it's a, you know, lockdown is a relatively new concept for us all. So um, in, in terms of, of data, I guess we're looking uh, at comparable situations like, uh, you know, other community-wide disasters such as the Christchurch earthquakes. Um, um, but we also do, you know, we've been in this terrible situation of the pandemic for, you know, nearly two years now. And uh, and so there is information. And I guess that, you know, the, the, the clear theme is that when the community is responding to a natural disaster, and, you know, this goes back to data from wars and you know, other major community-wide threats and events. It actually boosts people's mental health in the first instance. Uh, and that's because people uh, feel like they're part of something. I mean, we've been very much encouraged to think of ourselves as part of the team of five million. People who are often on the margins of a community feel like that they're not included you know, and that very much means people who are uh, living with long-term mental distress, you know, they, they feel like they're actually part of something. The number of deaths by suicide has actually stalled or, or diminished over the lockdowns. And again, you know, one of the positive uh, byproducts is that people are around one another in their whanau, in their, in their bubbles, in their home. Um, and people are more conscious of reaching out to one another and supporting one another. So, in fact, there are a lot of protective factors, you know, associated with um, with the lockdowns in particular, and and with a community responding to you know a major crisis. Um, and, and we've certainly seen that playing out. It's really interesting you say that because I hadn't considered that lockdowns actually kind of short circuit a lot of the ways that we're disconnected in modern society. Um, we, we go to work, we're away from our family the majority of the time, we might miss them, and this means that we're basically forced to spend time with the people that are closest to us. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, and look, it's, it's not a simplistic just this or just that scenario. Uh, you know, there are situations where people are being you know, kind of trapped in a bubble that may include family violence. And, you know, those kinds of situations are obviously, you know, not good. It's the long tail uh, following some kind of uh, natural disaster or, or community threat that can have significant impacts on people's uh, mental well-being. But again, there's a big difference between the notion of people's mental well-being and you know, simplistic ideas of mental illness. So, you know, what we are definitely seeing in our interactions with the community in Tamaki Makoto in Auckland, uh, and, you know, we're interacting heavily uh, online with people, 
is that there is a general sense of low well-being, of of kind of uh, low mood, sort of um, you know, low energy, uh, uh, frustration, uh, and you know, of course, that's that's very natural. Um, that is quite different from people becoming mentally unwell. Uh, now there is a relationship between that. If we, you know, we need to lift people's mental well-being, that sort of fundamental state of 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 languishing that many people are experiencing, we need to try and lift that and mitigate that. Because if that goes on for a long time, then it definitely increases the risk of more serious mental health problems. But it, you know, it's not a simple um, equation that. Uh, lockdowns equal people becoming seriously mentally unwell. Lockdowns are hard. No one's really disputing that. But has some of the commentary or a lot of the commentary really failed to consider the counterfactual here, which is the mental health effects of just opening up? Yeah, look, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, that's been a key argument that that we've made. Um, you know, it, 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 there is, you know, there is a... A lobby, a position of, of some people, you know, we have the Plan B group, uh, you know, we have a number of people who would like to just see the restrictions around the pandemic, you know, the lockdowns end, uh, you know, we've really considered, uh, you know, what would be the impacts of out of control COVID in the community uh, without any checks and balances, you know, you would see, um, you know, very significant numbers of people becoming infected, um, a much bigger spike in, in deaths. Uh, also, you know, the, some of the indications are that as many as 25% of people that get COVID-19 have long-term health impacts. Um, you know, without checks and balances, our, our whole health system would be overrun. And, and so, you know, you'd also have the impact of people who couldn't get health treatment for, for other types of conditions. And, you know, that would have very big impacts. So, you know, we've got grief about deaths. Uh, we've got grief about health. You know, we've, we've got fear and anxiety, you know, in an out of control uh, pandemic. So the sort of that the alternative scenario to what we're facing now has very big threats to people's mental health and well-being. I've, I've actually been quite angry at uh, some of the people who clearly have a political agenda around ending lockdowns, who have quite, I think, you know, insincerely tried to link mental health and suicide rates to the lockdowns as an argument to sort of say, you know, the this, this strategy of lockdowns is terrible and we should change it. You know, and it, it makes me extremely angry, actually, when people use mental health and use suicides as a sort of a, a, a way to just push their political agenda. And there was some research that was uh, released in the last month. It was done by someone who is part of the Plan B group who are, you know, that's their raison d'etre is... is to uh, to lobby against lockdowns, and it was research into suicides amongst children, and it was reported quite uncritically by some media outlets. On the other hand, some uh, some reporters said to me, "Yep, look, I saw that who 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 done that research, recognised them as part of Plan B, and thought not going to touch it." 
So, you know, it does make me pretty angry when when people use what is a very significant issue, you know, the, the mental health and well-being uh, of our nation, um, you know, the people's lives, you know, people's lives, uh, you know, and, and they and they manipulate that or try to manipulate that topic for their own political agenda. You know, I will always be up for standing up and opposing that. Yeah. Can we talk about suicide a little bit more? Uh, there's been a whole bunch of stuff circulating on social media and in the media linking lockdowns to suicide, that sort of thing. Last year, you were forced to issue a statement clearing up uh, suicide rate after an anonymous tweet claiming there were six suicides a day was retweeted widely and interacted with by people, including Judith Collins. So just to clear it up, what has happened with our suicide statistics over the pandemic? Yeah, well, look, you know, last year in 2020, you know, over the lockdowns, the number of suicides went down, not up. Uh, you know, when the when the facts were revealed, it was completely con- uh, contradicting that you know very malicious rumor. And we've just had the official um, stats from the coroner's office, you know, within the last two weeks, and again, year on year. You know the the number of deaths by suicide has gone down. So you know that is the the factual situation. That's not to say that we don't have a very serious issue uh, with suicide in New Zealand. We absolutely do. You know it's it's actually remaining very stubbornly high, but it's not skyrocketing as a result of COVID nineteen. Um, you know, and in fact there are a lot of protective factors associated with being in lockdown that are having a positive impact on the number of deaths from suicide. Do we fail to consider the effect of removing those protective factors uh, from people who are really vulnerable? You know, the benefits of opening up uh, really to the people who are able-bodied and unlikely to die of COVID-19 do we kind of ignore the people who are immunocompromised or older or the children who can't get vaccinated or the anxiety of the parents whose children can't get vaccinated? Do those things get shoved to the side when we debate the glorious opening up into freedom and advocate for that? Some people do ignore that. You know, one of the things that we are concerned about is that, you know, there's now evidence that one of the, one of the impacts of long COVID is, you know, poor mental health. Uh, it can affect people's brains. It can affect uh, depression and anxiety. It can affect memory. Now, this is not me arguing to say that we need to stay in lockdown restrictions forever and a day. You know, that's, you know, far from that. You know, there are a number of things that have to be balanced as we think about our response. But we really need to look at the facts. We really need to look at you know, the experience overseas, um, you know, New Zealand is in the advantageous position of being somewhat isolated in the world. We can look at what other people have done in other countries, um, learn from things that didn't go well, learn from things that have gone well, and, yeah, then really make a very considered response. You know, this is going to be, sadly, you know, living with COVID-19, I believe, is going to be something that's that's going to be with us for the rest of our lives. It's going to be, you know, one of those things that that as a society and as a world, we, we have to live with and cope with. 
And, you know, that will have implications for people's mental health, but it's not a simplistic black-white response that, that, will, that will actually mitigate those, those risks. Is the thing that most annoys you just using mental health as a kind of political football? So I think a month ago, Kate Hawksby wrote a column saying the mental health pandemic could be bigger than the COVID one. And that says anxiety levels are through the roof. Do we have to be careful about making these kinds of conclusions uh, that suit our own agenda without evidence? Oh, look, absolutely. Um, as I said, you know, uh, people f- jump on the you know very serious issue of um, the mental health and mental well-being of our nation, and kind of use it, use it, uh, weaponize it really for their own political agendas. Uh, and you know, I think again, it's sort of it's fed by the fact that we don't have a particularly nuanced understanding of mental health in our kind of public media discussions. So when you know someone like Kate Hawksby says, you know, anxiety's through the roof. Well, what does she mean? I mean, yes, we're all feeling a bit anxious, a bit worried. That is quite normal, you know, in response to the very unusual uh, situation that we find ourselves in with a with a, a global pandemic that's affecting New Zealand. But, you know, there's a very big difference between saying that and, and saying clinical anxiety is through the roof. You know, so we use a lot of these terms very loosely, uh, you know, and, and I'm sure quite deliberately when people have a political agenda. Yeah, I thought that statement, the mental health pandemic could be bigger than the COVID one is almost, <laughs> I don't know, offensive in its magnitude. Yeah, look, you know, I, I absolutely advocate uh, that mental health is probably the biggest uh, health issue facing New Zealand other than COVID-19. Decades and decades, we have not addressed mental health and well-being effectively in this country. You know, we are kind of reaping the downsides of that. But, you know, that's not the same as kind of convoluting that with COVID-19, you know, for a political agenda. That's, you know, our argument from the Mental Health Foundation, my argument, is that, you know, we have a pathway set out by Ha'ara Oranga, the report of the inquiry into mental health and addictions. It, It needs systematic attention if we're going to turn things around, and it needs a full holistic understanding of mental health and well-being. So that's what I mean when I'm talking about, you know, a, a significant mental health pandemic. But, you know, I'm not saying that is caused by COVID-19. I mean, that way pre-existed COVID-19. Should we, as the media, on both sides of this debate, just be more cautious about drawing firm conclusions about the mental health effects of COVID policy and COVID-19 in general, given it seems complicated and even experts are finding it really difficult to assess. Some journalists are fantastic. Some journalists are really good. They think hard. They want to look at the whole picture. Others in the media, quite frankly, are lazy and they use simplistic tropes, almost unthought through reactions to mental health, you know, and, and and then sort of put simplistic views of mental health together with simplistic views of COVID-19 and come up with 
stupid, simplistic answers. So, you know, I think if journalists think about uh, links between mental health and well-being and COVID-19, then the first thing they need to do is think very hard about what mental health and mental and emotional well-being is. It's not all about mental illness. Uh, mental and emotional resilience. It's our state of mental and emotional well-being um, and the interaction between that and mental illness. Then I think we can start to have, you know, a, an intelligent, informed and useful debate. I think, you know, what COVID-19 has done, it has pushed a, a significant chunk of the Tamaki Makoto Auckland population into a state of languishing, you know, where they're, now they're not mentally unwell, but they are, you know, they're not feeling good mentally or emotionally. And that languishing state may well continue for quite some time. Uh, and if that's not mitigated, and we're doing our best to mitigate that, if that's not mitigated, then that does create long-term risks to people's mental health. Now that is, you know, a fuller understanding of the links between mental health and well-being and COVID-19. I think in general, maybe just a little bit less confidence, a little bit more caution when we're talking about mental health. Look, absolutely. Think harder about mental health. Ask yourselves the question, what is mental health? Whenever I'm asked to talk about mental health, that's the first question I address. What is it? What do you understand it to be? Uh, and, you know, go to page 15 of Hei Ara Oranga, the report of the Mental Health and Addictions Inquiry, and look at what they said in summary there. I mean, this country spent millions of dollars and nearly two years looking at this question. We came up with a, a, an answer and a direction, uh, and then most people seem to have completely ignored it, uh, which is extremely frustrating. Thank you so much for speaking to me, Sean. You're welcome. Thanks, Hayden. That's Sean Robinson, Chief Executive of the Mental Health Foundation, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell.